Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that was once true story, a total returnaholic. Yeah, I would buy so much stuff and return almost all of it. And to me, it was like, well, it's no big deal because, you know, it's way more responsible of me to return it if someone else can wear it rather than keep it. Never mind that I could have just shopped less. Anyway, wow, I really, (laughs) my life has really changed over the past few years. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 184. This week, you probably guessed it already, we're going to talk all about one of retail and fashion's dirtiest secrets, returns, meaning all of the stuff that customers buy every year that they return. This is actually perfect timing for a conversation about this because if you're listening to this episode around the time it is originally released, this week is Black Friday. And wow, one in three customers who shop on Black Friday will make a return. They'll be sending back about 30 million unwanted items in the UK alone. I can't even begin to imagine what the returns in the US will be, but according to the National Retail Federation, about 18% of all items purchased during the holiday shopping season will be returned. In fact, I just learned this, nerdy fact right here, the Thursday after Black Friday is often called Returns Thursday. Don't you love that we... This time of year, every day has a special name, (laughs) all based in, you know, capitalism. Anyway, Returns Thursday. It's called that because it tends to be the biggest return day of the year. Believe it or not, and this surprised me, beating out even the day after Christmas as the biggest return day of the year. Because people are returning all of their Black Friday purchases. You know, I'll tell you, even as a person who worked and continues to work, maybe in a different way, in this industry for my entire adult life, even I as a buyer who was responsible for monitoring how much of this stuff was returned, you know, what was worth moving forward with, all that's all of that, I never actually knew what was happening to all the stuff that was returned until just a few years ago. Hence my change in my shopping behavior. My returnaholicism had to be cured, right? Had to deal with it once and for all. But returns are shrouded in secrecy even for people within the industry. Probably, I mean, I have a million reasons why that might be, but I think the biggest one is that our continued overshopping from brands means that we have to believe that we are making the most environmentally responsible decision when we return something. And on top of that, we have to believe that returning something, like oh, buying too much and returning it, that that whole series of actions right there, has no negative impact whatsoever. That it's impactless, I suppose. Is that a word? I don't know. Maybe it's free of impact. Whichever you prefer. I'm fine with you saying impactless, even if it's not a word. Anyway, if we knew that there was a negative impact that came from overshopping and then returning, guess what? We might not shop as much. And if brands told us that they were actually ditching 
a big chunk of the stuff we return, we would probably think so differently about shopping, right? For this very important conversation, I'm going to be joined by Emily, who has a lot of experience in the world of returns, customer care, and the intersection of technology and returns. We'll be talking about how big of an issue returns has become for the retail industry, particularly in the world of apparel, where roughly a quarter of all clothing bought each year is returned. And we'll get into how the industry is reacting and what it might do next. Before that, we're going to listen to two audio essays from small business owners in our community. Of course we are, because it's November and it's close horse. We're going to get started with Ren of Ren B Designs. Hi, my name is Ren, and I'm the founder and designer behind Ren B Designs. I officially started the brand a year ago, but I've been working toward doing my own thing since studying design in college. My degree emphasis was in sustainability. Everything I learned about how bad the fast fashion industry is for people and the planet created a lot of guilt and anxiety around wanting to start a small business. I think it took me as long as it did to start because I wanted to be certain I wouldn't burden the world with more stuff it didn't need. However, my good intentions gave me analysis paralysis for quite some time and evolved into an unproductive sense of perfectionism. If I have learned anything, is that there is no perfectly ethical, sustainable business, especially when a big portion of the problem is the socially acceptable behavior of overconsumption. Once I embraced the imperfection of it all was when I truly was able to begin. The brand utilizes existing clothes and materials, which we adoringly refer to as pre-loved, to create chaotically colorful, genderless clothing. As someone who came out as non-binary later in life, while in the throes of the corporate fashion industry, I felt for a long time I didn't dress correctly, air quotes around correctly, for a gender-fluid person. The industry thought of genderless clothing as some amorphous third-gender category and had guardrails rigid up around what was considered to be men's and women's clothing as well as genderless. It was often defined by a neutral color palette with very little design details. Essentially, as close to a blank slate as possible, because otherwise, the clothes would start to be perceived as a part of the binary. They put the neutral and gender neutral. This was not, and is not, my personal style at all. I live in a world of color and print, and of one statement piece never being enough in an outfit, and for a long time I felt that I was gendering wrong. Ren B is very much now an extension of the clothes I never saw considered genderless, and how I love to dress. At its core, my intention is to change the language and conversation around clothing's relationship to gender. If clothes have no gender, then all clothing is genderless. Therefore, you can wear whatever the fuck you want. Even beyond that, I take a lot of consideration into the technical design of my pieces to make sure that they aren't designed to fit any one shape or presentation of a body. My hope is that all queer people see my brand as a safe space, even within the community, to experiment with personal style. On a more personal note, having a small business as someone who is both ADHD and autistic is invaluable. Outside of a traditional working environment, I no longer hold myself to neurotypical standards and I'm able to craft my workflow around my own needs. I wish I could go back in time and tell younger me, fresh out of high school or college, that it doesn't have to be this hard. It's a system that's broken. Big companies aren't there to accommodate your needs, they exist to make money. That means you are just as smart and capable and professional working from bed in your cat pajamas as in an office wearing a tie. If you want to support the brand and check out the designs, you can find me on Instagram at renb.designs. 
That's R-E-N-B as in boy dot D-E-S-I-G-N-S or on my website, renbydesigns.com. Thanks! Okay, so Ren wins an award, making the trophy right now for most vivacious audio essay of 2023. And I have to say, I was really excited to share this one with you. As a non-binary person myself and someone who thinks a lot about clothing and gender, I was super stoked to discover Ren because I really hate how gendered clothing is right now. It's not just right now, maybe a couple centuries now. And specifically, how we perceive someone's gender based on their clothing. I know that we kind of can't help it at this point because we still have to do a lot of unpacking to get there, right? Because it's been drilled into our heads since birth that certain colors, silhouettes, prints, and details are either feminine or masculine. I would ask you to take a minute and kind of close your eyes and imagine a feminine outfit, Now imagine a masculine outfit. Now imagine a genderless outfit. Well, as Ren points out, most gender-fluid, genderless, or unisex clothing out there falls under that masculine umbrella. Muted colors, patterns like plaid or stripes, only a few silhouettes like pants and button-ups, and a complete lack of razzle-dazzle like sparkle, ruffles, bows, etc. It's interesting, it's something like, once again, I think about this a lot, that when we think of genderless clothing, our brains default to what we think of as masculine clothing. And I'm sure that speaks to a gazillion years of patriarchy coming down on us, right? That's that's where it starts. Another thing I think about a lot, seriously, I don't know where I'm finding all this time to think because I think it's when I'm supposed to be sleeping, perhaps. Another thing I think about a lot is reclaiming fashion and style as art and creative expression. And I think ungendering clothing, truly expanding the mainstream concept of unisex or genderless clothing means dismantling all of these unwritten rules about what is masculine or feminine. A cis man can wear pink and red heart prints. Honestly, he should because that's the best color palette in my humble opinion. A non-binary person like myself can wear a floofy pastel dress. We can all wear whatever we want. I know that sounds like a sort of utopian dream and Side note, speaking of utopian dreams, you know, if if you know me well on social media, then you know that I love Star Trek. And I was reading on Reddit, of course, I'm always on Reddit. I don't, I think that's also what I'm doing when I should be sleeping. I was reading on the Star Trek subreddit uh, that in the first few episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was like a late 80s, early 90s, uh, iconic Star Trek program. Uh, in the first few episodes, they had a sort of like skirt, mini skirt with like legging pants underneath or something that ma- some male members of Starfleet wore. Um, and then it kind of disappeared. 
um, probably because it didn't receive a good reaction, but I'm ready for it. I'm ready for this utopian future where we all wear skirts if we want, or we never wear skirts because we hate them, whatever it is. I hope that the next new Star Trek program that comes out someday uh, includes includes more tunics and skirts for all. I personally, as you know, not a fan of pants, so everyone deserves that level of comfort. <laughs> but anyway, this idea of us all wearing whatever we want does sound like a dream world, but I do think that with innovators and designers like Ren out there in the world, we can make that a reality. I truly believe that some of our overconsumption, maybe most of it actually, stems from unhappiness, you know, like dumb jobs, the nonstop anxiety of what it is to live in 2023. And also just not being able to truly be ourselves because we're feeling constantly pushed into a box dictated by society. And that box is so uncomfortable. It often feels like we are play acting as someone else. I know for me, the constant pressure as someone assigned female at birth, that constant pressure to be more feminine, meaning more fun, but not too fun, more pretty, lots of concern about what was flattering to wear versus what I actually wanted to wear, you know, being smart, but not too smart seeming, more accommodating, not pushing back on things, all of that sweet of what society says it is to be feminine in this world. It all felt really so uncomfortable to me. And yeah, I think it made me drink a lot, wear a lot of clothes I didn't like, which meant I bought them before I wore them, date people who were bad for me and do a lot of other things because I felt like I truly couldn't be me. I had to be this other person for some reason. Just something for us all to think about. I know that's pretty heavy, but this is close horse and you're used to thinking about heavy things after you hear this. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Ren, for recording such a great audio essay and starting this conversation and not least importantly, giving me a chance to talk about Star Trek on Close Horse. <laughs> okay, next you're about to hear a familiar voice. It's Ruby of Spokes and Stitches, a regular guest around here. I kind of can't believe how different Ruby's essay is from last year, and I'm so happy about it. Uh, last year, she told us she kind of had to back burner her dream of being a small business owner for financial reasons. Now she's in it. She's really doing it. So let's take a listen. Hi, Amanda. My name is Ruby, and I go by Spokes and Stitches on Instagram. Um, you have probably heard me as a guest on the podcast before, um, whether it was the dress code episodes um, or the episode about gender and fashion um, from a couple months ago. Um, but I have a small business called Spokes and Stitches, um, and... I've been looking forward to recording this voice memo to share a little bit more about it. Um, so ever since I graduated from fashion school in 2012, I've had this really strong urge to figure out a different approach 
um, a different relationship to the fashion industry. The first few jobs that I had um, and internships that I had in the fashion industry just felt really exploitative. Um, there was definitely like bad, toxic work environments. And uh, pretty soon after like my first year working in the industry full-time, I ended up working in college admissions while freelancing as a seamstress, pattern maker, and sewing tutor um, because I just kept feeling like I did not want to be working full-time um, in the fashion industry. So Spokes and Stitches started as an indie sewing pattern company during the pandemic. Um, I had actually filed for an LLC in 2019 when I was first thinking about quitting my full-time job in art school admissions in Philadelphia. Um, I had previously run a small side business in New York City from 2015 to 2017 called Sewing Lessons NYC, where I rode my bicycle all across New York City, all five bars and gave people private sewing lessons and tutoring in their own homes. Um, I worked with folks of all ages, um, from children who, you know, wanted something to do after school, um, to retirees and folks who were newer hobbyists, to fashion students who were working on their senior thesis collections at Parsons, Pratt, and FIT, and other sewing, um, other fashion schools in New York City. Um, so I've always had this like entrepreneurial spirit and this strong urge to like do my own thing. Every time that I've found myself in a full-time job working for someone else, I've gotten like this itch to leave and, and start doing my own thing again. Um, and pretty much since my teen years, I've had this vision of sort of this like old timey tailor shop slash sewing studio that isn't just for wealthy clients, but for the common person. Um, so it's partly sort of this like nostalgic image, I think, of like maybe what the fashion and clothing industry once was. Um, and it's also partly this optimistic, maybe even solar punk vision of this future that I'd like to see where everything is more locally produced and you have a relationship to the person who makes your clothing. Um, my great grandmother was actually a dressmaker um, and my great aunt owned a fabric store. Um, and my other aunt was also a textile artist and my mom also went to school for textiles. So it definitely runs in my family. There's definitely um, a lot of textile artists and clothing enthusiasts <laughs> in my lineage. Um, so since leaving my most recent full-time job a couple months ago to explore entrepreneurship once again, I decided to try out a bunch of stuff and kind of see what sticks. So right now, in my studio in the Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia, I'm offering sewing and pattern making workshops, private sewing lessons, custom clothing and costume design, mending and alterations, and professional services such as pattern making and grading. So since I went full-time at this two months ago, I've been working like seven days a week. <laughs> like probably like 12 hour days. Um, and honestly, I can feel myself on the verge of burnout. Um, I have been meeting with a small business advisor who is really wonderful through my local small business development center. Um, and she has been helping me to realize that I need to scale back my offerings and just focus on a few things. So this is probably going to look like services that have a lower profit margin falling by the wayside. So specifically mending and alterations, it's really hard to charge a high enough hourly rate for that type of work um, to cover all of the unpaid labor of marketing and admin that goes into managing a small business. Um, so I'm probably going to be focusing on 
services that have a higher profit margin. So that looks probably more like workshops, um, like group workshops where I'm getting multiple people to pay an admission fee, um, as well as the professional services like pattern making. So the biggest challenge for me as a small business owner has been setting boundaries with myself, like taking days off and not falling into a pit of despair when I don't meet my financial goals for the month. Pricing is also really difficult to get right. Um, I've had to learn that I can't just strive to recreate the hourly rate I receive at a day job when I'm working for someone else because I need to factor in overhead expenses, materials, and also leave a buffer in case things take longer than expected or something goes awry and I have to like take a day off or something. Um, so I'm definitely still working on refining my pricing structure and kind of figuring out what that sweet spot is in terms of what people can and will pay for services um, and what I need to make in order to stay afloat as a small business. Uh, The biggest lesson I've learned so far is that I really have to be gentle and compassionate to myself and surround myself with support and cheerleaders. Um, Taking advantage of my local small business development center has been invaluable um, and finding mentors who I like and trust has also been really, really important. So yeah, that's kind of where my small business journey is at right now. Um, Again, my name is Ruby and my business is called Spokes and Stitches. You can find me on Instagram at Spokes and Stitches and my website is www.spokesandstitches.com. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank you, Ruby, for being so just like honest with all of us. I'm going to tell you that one, I'm so glad Ruby has been working with a professional to figure out how to make her business more sustainable, both financially and emotionally. And two, everything she is saying is 100% true. And it's also why it's super important to get someone outside, someone unbiased, someone with a lot of professional experience to give you advice about your business, no matter how long it has been around. Sometimes we as small business owners will offer certain services or products because we always have. Even as a buyer, let me tell you, I've worked for some companies that were like, well, we always have that. And I'm like, well, no one buys it. So we need to stop having it, right? Or we don't make any money off of it. So we need to stop and you know reconfigure, right? Same thing with your small business. Often these things that we have been doing or offering or selling for a long time are no longer or maybe never were profitable or sustainable. Honestly, <laughs> some of us are probably doing some something similar in our personal lives, even if we don't own a business, you know, offering our time and emotional energy for things that might be consuming all of that without really accomplishing anything. I know that a lot of small businesses are struggling right now, and it's really easy to get caught in that spiral because it's hard to separate your business from you. And when your business is not doing well, you feel like a failure. You feel like you are the problem. And so it's hard to dig yourself emotionally out of that. I would ask you to take a deep breath, take some time, take a step back, and look at what you are offering the world. What makes sense financially? What actually sells? What could you be doing more of? And what could you be doing less of? All businesses change over time. 
And small businesses tend to see shifts every few months. The businesses that survive and even flourish will be the ones that see those changes, those trends, and react in a timely manner. It's actually the past couple sessions of Small Biz Big Pick, which are the small business classes I teach with my friend Courtney of Sonic Wave Vintage. We've been spending a lot of time talking about how to analyze our sales, our business, our inventory to make smarter, more strategic decisions going forward. Um, Spoiler, it involves a lot of spreadsheets and pivot tables, which I'm very passionate about, just as passionate as I am about Star Trek. And uh, it's been really, uh, it's kind of some of my favorite work I've done in Small Biz Big Pick because I love hearing from people in the class about what they've realized from doing that and what they're changing. And when you run a small business, it's really hard to give yourself that treat of that luxury, I suppose, of some free time to take a look at this stuff, but it is really, really important for the future of your business. Thank you to Ruby and Ren for taking the time to write and record your audio essays. They were amazing. I'll be sharing their Instagram accounts, websites, etc., in the show notes, so please give them a follow and check out what they do. Okay, so let's talk about returns for a few before we jump into my conversation with Emily. First, let's start with some pretty staggering numbers. Okay, are you ready? In 2022, U.S. retail sales were $4.95 trillion, just shy of $5 trillion. $816 billion worth of merchandise was returned. That was almost 17% of those total sales, 16.5% to be precise. That means in simpler terms that for every $100 in sales done in 2022, $16.50 worth of product was returned. And that doesn't sound too terrible, right? If you told me today that there was a 16.5% chance of rain, I'd be like, uh, I don't need an umbrella, right? But when you start talking about close to $5 trillion in retail sales, you end up with more than $800 billion worth of product being returned in the United States alone. And while we're talking about all categories of products landing at that 16.5% return rate, Clothing is closer to 24 to 25%, meaning one in four garments purchased is returned. Here's the thing. Sounds wild, but then think about the last time you ordered four or eight things online. How many did you return? I bet you returned at least one or two. There you go. There's 25%, right? Well, processing those returns is an arduous and very expensive process called reverse logistics. And it costs a lot of money. It's hard to get a clear number because it turns out that a lot of retailers aren't really tracking it well, or they're trying to keep it a secret because, you know, it's not good for stock prices. Analysts believe it is somewhere between 500 to $200 billion being spent every year to process these returns. Other analysts say it's about a 
third of all retail sales by those companies. I I know. Others say that the cost of returns is more like 59% of the original selling price of an item. So if the selling price for an item was $50, we're looking at about $30 to process the return, including shipping. I know. Either way, any of these numbers is a lot, but wow, 59% of the original selling price is pretty wild. And yet, when you think about it, it makes sense because returns are expensive to handle. If, and this is a big if, the company actually decides to process all returned items and puts them back in inventory to sell to someone else, it takes a lot of time, which is money, right? particularly when we talk about online returns. Let's think about the journey of it. So first, there's the return shipping cost, right? Often the retailer is paying for that. Next, they have to pay someone to unpack the return, inspect it, steam, fold, repackage it, and then have another person physically put it back into the inventory, like go down the aisles in the warehouse, find the bin, and put it away. Then there's the process of returning it to the warehouse management system, like the technological side of it, and then refunding the money. And of course, there are the customer service teams that are managing the communication around returns and smoothing things over with unhappy customers. It's expensive. Anytime there are people involved in something, the retail industry is gonna find a way to cut every cost there, right? Many retailers have found that this process is actually more expensive than just trashing or donating the returns, just like not processing them at all, which speaks to both the cost of this process and the shockingly low costs and high margins of the fast everything era. We talked in the last episode about how costs are cut and cut and cut when designing and producing a garment, right? I'll tell you, it is not uncommon in the fast fashion realm to price a garment with an 80% markup. That would mean that, say, a $50 shirt cost $10 for the retailer. That means all materials, production, shipping, duties, etc. Of course, many of those $50 shirts and everything else that these retailers offer are going to sell on sale, maybe for $30 or $40. But with that kind of markup, you can make the math math while also throwing out or donating any returns. Let's, let's walk through this for a moment. Don't worry, you don't need a calculator because I already did the math. Let's say you sell 1,000 units of that $50 shirt but you're selling them for $30 because, you know, you are a fast fashion brand and you sell most things on sale. Okay, you sold 1,000 units for $30. That's $30,000 in revenue. But 25% of those were returned. So that's 250 units. That's in line with the standard return rate for apparel. So what we're going to do is we're going to reduce that revenue of $30,000 to reflect those returns, bringing us to $22,500 in revenue or sales. Now, we know that 750 units of that shirt were sold and not returned, and they cost $10 each. 
So that's a cost of $7,500. We're gonna subtract that from that $22,500 in sales. That leaves us with $15,000 in gross profit. But remember, 250 units of that shirt were returned and we were like, there's no way we're paying to return those to inventory. Let's just donate them or toss them out. Those 250 shirts cost a total of $2,500 to make. We're still left. We deduct the cost of those shirts, of throwing them out, of of the cost of making the sh- all the shirts in the first place. We're still left with $12,500 in gross profit. Now multiply that by hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of shirts being sold. And you can see that by creating very profitable products, tossing out returns is kind of NBD from a financial perspective, unless you're Revolve, which Emily and I will be talking about in our conversation. We just did all of that math, not just because it was fun, but it was pretty fun, but because I wanted to illustrate how creating low quality product with a very high profit margin keeps fast fashion brands profitable, even while dealing with lots of returns, 25% or more of items being returned. It's still, it's still profitable if you sell enough of it at a high enough margin. Remember what fast fashion does to make clothing as profitably as possible while keeping prices low. They swap into low quality synthetic fabrics. They cut out details like lining and pockets. They swap out high quality trims for less expensive ones like crappy zippers. They skip fittings and samples to actually get the fit right. They just are like, oh, it'll fit someone. And of course, they squeeze factories on pricing while underpaying everyone involved in making shipping, and selling our clothing. Fast fashion cuts a lot of corners to cover the cost of free shipping and all of those returns. And something we've been talking about a lot lately on social and even in the previous episode is how clothes have been getting progressively worse in the fast fashion era, right? A big part of that is the adoption of the fast fashion business model, which we've discussed quite a bit. But another part of it is doing the business of selling online while still being super profitable. And so we are paying for returns and all that free shipping by getting lower quality product, right? As returns and free shipping became the norm, we saw as buyers the targets for margins, meaning profitability on clothing, be pushed up year after year after year pretty aggressively, which meant we had to find and make these clothes for a lower price year after year after year. It all comes together, right? It's like fast fashion, returns, free shipping, all of this other stuff forces the quality of product down. And also, it forces all of our wages down. I had this moment a couple nights ago where I was like, oh my God, there's a clear line from free shipping and wealth disparity, income inequality, low wages, bad benefits, bad jobs, right? 
it's all connected and returns are, are part of that too. So yeah, so fast fashion cuts a lot of corners to cover the cost of all those returns and free shipping. And the irony of this, of course, is that cutting all of those corners like fabric, fit, details, etc., actually leads to more returns. But it's like fast fashion brands can't see the big picture or they don't want to see the big picture. It's better for them to sell us lots and lots of shoddy stuff that we will absolutely return, that they will absolutely write off the books, that will absolutely fill up our thrift stores, our landfills, our oceans, and every other nook and cranny of the earth over time. Because in the short term, it drives profits, it drives up stock prices, and it makes a lot of people at the top very, very rich. All while the rest of us, you, me, and everyone we know, we cope with the economic and environmental impact of all of those shitty clothes. It's no joke when you learn that in 2021, which by the way, I'm just going to preface this, returns in 2022 were in line with 2021, so about the same. In one year alone, returned products turned into 9.6 billion pounds of trash heading to the landfills. That's the equivalent of 10,500 Boeing 747s, humongous planes. That number, it's staggering. It makes sense when you realize that at least half of returned clothing is never worn by another person. It might be more than that that is never worn by another person, but retailers hide this information because it is not a good look. And I also just want to say a lot of retailers are opting into donation with some of the stuff these days in order to seem more sustainable. That's another reason there's so much bad stuff at the thrift store. And when a place like the Goodwill is making room for all that stuff, they just got donated by Target, all those returns and new unsold things. They have less room for actual legit, nice secondhand things. So It also stifles our access to quality secondhand clothing. And then there's more, right? The carbon impact of transporting those returns around, it's the equivalent of almost 6 million cars driven for one year. Does that make you angry? Because it makes me like beyond angry. And sometimes I feel like I'm over here in like, you know, the classic like tinfoil hat conspiracy theory situation, but I see how all of these things are connected and it's in the worst interest of these brands for us to know the truth, because how can you know these truths and not make a change? All right. Well, I think that's a great time to jump into my conversation with Emily. Afterwards, I'll talk about how we, as individuals, can maybe return a little bit less. Okay, Emily, why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. 
My name is Emily. I live in sunny Seattle, Washington. I have a four-pound Yorkshire Terrier named Toffee. He's very cute. Quite a handful. Yorkies are my favorite dog, period. Oh, well, I'll have to send you some photos of him you afterwards have to. because yes. he is a delight. <laughs> um, I have over 10 years of experience working retail and customer experience in some form. And I'm really wow. excited to be talking with you about returns today. I am excited to talk about returns today because I was telling you before we started recording, there are many things that uh, are kind of hidden secrets about the stuff we buy, but there are two things that are really, I don't know, I would say people have the most confusion or lack of knowledge about. One is shipping. I do really, truly believe that a lot of people think that shipping can actually be free, uh, whereas as in no one pays for it. We know that's not true. And the other thing is like people do not know what happens to the stuff they return, how it works, anything like that. And I was telling you like I just really started to understand returns and what really happens to the stuff we buy online and return like maybe in the last 5 or 6 years even after working as a buyer for all these years and definitely looking at the percentage of something that was being returned, but never being told where the returned stuff went. I just assumed probably like most people that if I bought something online and I didn't like it and I returned it, that, you know, they received my package and then they put it back on the website and someone else bought it and it was a happy ending, right? (laughs) I wish it was that easy, but honestly, I think it's a secret and for a reason, probably. I think so too. And I will also say, and we're going to like unpack this in all kinds of ways today. What I have noticed in my career when it comes to returns is that I don't think retailers knew it was going to be the big thing that it has become. Like it's like a monster now. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm going to tell you at some point when we're talking today, all the stuff I was reading about Revolve that just blew my mind. Like, I I can't believe how much stuff gets returned to Revolve. Anyway, we're going to talk all about that today. So how did you get into the returns game? Yeah, it's kind of a funny story, um, but I'll try to sum it up. I was working at a skincare startup and was one of two people responsible for manually issuing, issuing return labels to customers. There was one person in the warehouse responsible for documenting the receive returns in a Google Sheet. So fun. <laughs> yes. yes, the Google Classic. Sheet. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> and then um, I would manually refund the customer in Shopify. Super manual, very labor intensive, not at all fun for anyone involved. I think it was early 2019 when we got approval to look for a returns management software. We decided on a company called Returnly because of this feature they had called Green Returns. With this feature, merchants can offer a refund to eligible customers without the customer actually having to ship back the return. As you can imagine, a feature like this was a serious game changer for us and any other skincare company shipping all their products in glass bottles. And fast forward a couple of years, I start working at Returnly. Wow. I mean, you just touched on so many so many points I want to discuss, even just in that short little blurb you just shared with us. So first off, I think it's really interesting. Um, you're talking about how until 2019, basically, your the your employer was doing all their returns using a Google Sheet and manual returns, re- manual refunds in Shop- Shopify. And that, 
basically every place I worked up until around that point was doing the same thing, no matter what the size was. And I feel like you were almost working in a really luxurious job in that you had two people working on it. I know. I can't believe it. We we were really lucky. (laughs) Really lucky. You know, I've talked about this in the past here on the podcast, but when I was working for this one startup in the Pacific Northwest, we we had one customer service person and they were dealing with everything. I think they also had to write all the copy for the products on the site. I mean, it was like, how was this person possibly managing all this stuff? Being on the phone, taking emails, doing chat and writing product copy. And, you know, the returns, we had a 3PL at that point. So that was like out on the edge of the city, like far away. I mean, if you didn't have a car, very far away, which most of us didn't. And so all the return packages would like ship to our office where they would, in theory, be processed by the customer service person who would then do exactly everything you talked about. Track the return in the Google Doc, right? And then manually do the return. We didn't have Shopify, but we had something similar. Manually refund the money there. And what would happen, because this person is doing 9,000 other jobs, is, of course, they would fall behind on returns. And I, the way we were kind of keeping track of what was going to be coming inbound in terms of of returns is like when you were a customer, if you decided you wanted to return something, you would be sent a link to a form. It was a Google form. <laughs> and you would like fill in what you were returning and why. And I could send, I could then see what was going to be coming back. And there would be times where I'd say like, wow, we are out of stock in half the sizes of this item. Cause we're like a small company, you know, mm-hmm. uh, here's the thing. We have like 50 units of these things that are out of stock sitting in a pile over there in the corner and all those bins of returns that need to be processed. And so oftentimes I'd have to get like my team, the buying team, we would go over and start processing them, opening them, you know, inspecting them, returning them to the inventory, issuing the refund. And for me, that was a major unlock in understanding just how much time it takes to process even just one return. It is so much more complex, in my opinion, than packing an order and shipping it out. And you get them, and for a company, it's like not only it does it take more time and then therefore cost more money to process a return, uh, it also, uh, you don't make any money off of it. You lose money on it. And it's like, what a bad situation. So it's interesting this green returns feature, of course, that's what it's called, right? Of course, because they have to make it sustainable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, it's interesting, like, how many returns do you think you were getting in like a week or a month that really allowed you to get the permission to go find a service to do this for you? Like, what was the tipping point? I'm actually not sure. I think it was less than number of returns and more how much money we had because, Mm. you know, being a startup, we didn't really have a lot of available funds for that kind of thing. And we just really wanted to grow and make our customers' lives easier. Mm -hmm. So, um, and honestly, my brain cannot even think of a number right now. So, but I, I would say making the lives of our customers easier was a big one. And then how much money we could save in return shipping for these um, using the green returns feature. Yeah, I mean, I am familiar with the company that used to work for. I've actually bought stuff from them in the past. Oh, really? Yeah, I love their stuff. I think it's great. 
I'm happy to hear that. Um, and those glass jars are heavy. <laughs> like, yes, they are they really are. heavy. Yeah. And so would a lot of people before the green returns thing, they would actually physically send you the product back? Is that yes. what was happening? And what would you do with that? Because I... I mean, I'm not like super versed in that area, but I do follow the subreddits for Ulta employees and Sephora employees because <laughs> I'm creep. And they talk about how basically everything that gets returned, they have to damage out for like health reasons or whatever. Yes, that's exactly what it is. I mean, shout out to the one person who was receiving all those return packages and opening them up because that is a huge pain. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, we would just, no matter... For any reason, even if the customer said the return was like the product was unused, we would have to damage it out. And, you know, if they said the product was unopened, unused, maybe we'd since the production facility was where the returns were received was so close to where the office was. Some of us would just like maybe waltz on down to the production facility. Um, and if we happened to see a returned product that was usable, still we would. <laughs> be able to take that off of our hands. But um, yeah, they would just be sitting in large bins in a closet somewhere or thrown away. It's, yeah, it's really unfortunate. It is really unfortunate. And I, I mean, in that kind of business, it makes perfect sense that you would be like, just like, we'll just give you your money back because why spend the money to shift ship something out back to throw it out, you know? I know, it's so wasteful. That is like actually more green. You know, like, yes, it is. It is. That is truly green on a lot of levels, um, but also saved us a lot of money. So it was a win-win. Um, so, you know, I asked you, like, if perhaps returns had increased a lot, because I just, like, in my career, I have seen returns just, like, grow and grow and grow. And a big part of that is, like, shopping online, right? I mean, it's even more complicated than that, though, because, you know, companies put on these, like, free shipping thresholds, encourage people to add more stuff that they end up not wanting, and companies make a lot of clothes and other things that are really disappointing, don't fit well, aren't good <laughs> quality. Maybe they have bad photographs or bad sizing or, you know, there's a million reasons why. And also, like, I don't know, we kind of, we live in a moment of hall culture where you're, it's like, I don't know, we were, we're socialized to buy a lot of stuff in one order. And I think that's why a lot of stuff gets returned too. I would say a big chunk of returns, especially in the clothing area are really the fault of the retailer in the first place. But in general, like the, I would say the increase in returns is coming from all directions, right? It's like a perfect storm of everything going bad all at once. And, you know, you like we were kind of alluding to already, returns are really painful. They are expensive. I mean, just thinking about your employer shipping back all that stuff that's going to get thrown out, it makes me really sad. It makes me sad for everyone, actually, because it's like, wow, you're spending money to just collect trash, basically, you know? I mean, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, you and I talked about this before, more and more retailers now are just like, don't return it. And they just don't want to deal with the return expense, even if it would it would be usable again. It's like not skincare stuff. It's other things. They're like, you can have it. Um, but, you know, like in something that definitely 100% could not be sold to someone else, it's really, it's really sad. Um, and then, you know, processing these returns, it's called reverse logistics is so time consuming, which means it costs 
so much money. Um, and depending on how soon the person ships it back and how soon it's processed, inventory is unavailable for purchase. So it kind of just becomes a liability over time. Um, and if it's, if it's received and returned to the system way too late in the game, now it's just like a markdown, you know, like, I would dread working places where all of a sudden, like one week before Christmas, like all of the like holiday dresses would come back. And it's just like, no, now we'll never sell them. You know, they're going to sell on sale. And it's that kind of stuff is like really frustrating too. Um, But I have also noticed both like as a customer and a person working in this industry that return policies got really, really permissive, you know, like I was telling you when you, when we were prepping for this, like way back when I was working retail, we were in the early days, we were basically encouraged to, I don't know, like not accept returns. <laughs> like, yes. I, I, and I guess that's the best way I could put it to be like, mm, this smells like cigarette smoke, or I'm pretty sure you wash this, or like, this is, you know, just any reason we could, or any reason we could to just give someone store credit, you know? And over time, it was like, whatever, just give people their money, you know, <laughs> like no questions asked. And uh, I think that companies are starting to regret that, you know? Yes, I totally agree. I mean, honestly, I blame Nordstrom for a lot of that. And I used to work there. Interesting. So I can say that. Yeah, tell, tell me more. Why do you Why do you think it started with Nordstrom? I believe it because I think retailers, they all just copy each other, Right. Why not yes. copy Nordstrom? Nordstrom is great, you know? Why not copy Nordstrom? I mean, like, they've, of course, since changed a lot of their return policies, I think, because of this. And because people took advantage of mm-hmm. how lenient Nordstrom was with accepting returns. Oh, and I've heard stories. I mean, oh, yeah. yes. Well, I think most people um, who have worked um, retail, but especially at Nordstrom, have heard the story about... The Nordstrom store in Anchorage, Alaska, which is now closed, sadly, um, accepting a pair of a set of tires from someone because there used to be like a tire store where the Nordstrom was, but they like, just gave their money. Yes, this is a true story. Um, I don't remember when it was. It was like maybe early 2000s, 90s, whenever it was. I don't know. Um, and they literally just like gave the money to the customer for how much like the tires were, which is an amazing, amazing story because this is the reason why Nordstrom has established itself as a pioneer and forefront in the customer experience mm-hmm. and customer service world. And it's amazing. But unfortunately, I think um, there were some bad apples in the bunch and <laughs> they're the reason why <laughs> a lot of other companies like REI, Nordstrom, other companies that had very lenient return policies with very loyal customers who didn't abuse them are now changing their return policies. Yeah, I think that it's like really catching up them. And I I have heard so many stories over the years about Nordstrom, people bringing in something they bought like a year or two ago and getting their money back or, oh, yeah. you know, like all kinds of things that seemed unlikely. But over time, everybody sort of adopted that. Like, the return window, you know, was extended and 
mm-hmm. you know, like if you return something at Target, you don't even need to show up with the receipt. If you have the card you paid for it with, it's like fine, you know? So it just got easier and easier to return stuff in person at least. And, you know, I also think Amazon made, you know, they led the way in free shipping, right? And fast shipping. And also just like the easiest online returns where you just like, I mean, even now you can go drop stuff off at like Whole Foods to return something for Amazon. You don't even need to go to a post office. And they seem to ask no questions. I I want to say, gosh, if this was so long ago, it was probably like eight or nine years ago when I was living in LA, I ordered a cat water fountain for my cat because it was very dry there <laughs> and the vet recommended it. And I was really excited about it, as excited as you could be, okay? But still, I was like, this is pretty fancy. Um, now we're middle class, I guess, you know? And <laughs> of co- uh, I get home and the box isn't in front of my door, even though I'd gotten the little picture that it was, like inside the apartment building. And I go outside to the back of the apartment building and someone had gotten in the building and grabbed the box out of my, out of in front of my door and taken it out back and ripped it open and stole the cat water fountain. Um, oh no! And I this was the first time I like really experienced anything like that, and I also really hadn't returned much stuff in my life, especially like online. And so I was very anxious that I was, you know, this, I was out the money of this cat water fountain. And my friend was like, no, literally Amazon doesn't care. Just tell them. And I was like, really? And I went on chat and I was ready to have like all this evidence. And I was just like, oh, mm-hmm. the box was stolen. It was outside. And they were like, okay, cool. We're sending another one right now. That was it. I, I was like ready for it to be like a thing. And it wasn't. And I think I'm sure Amazon probably has a little bit more parameters around returns now too, but they really led the way in just being like free returns, easy returns, no questions asked returns for our online orders. And I think those two versions of customer service policy, like Nordstrom and Amazon, everybody copied because no one can be original in the retail industry. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, they have to keep up with one another. And we get to this point where, I mean, I I can say it from like working behind the scenes that in the first few years of my career where most shopping happened IRL and uh, my employer was definitely a little tougher about return policies, uh, at most, uh, like, like for us, a style was a bad style if it had a return rate that was more than like 5%. And then I moved on to, I remember when I, you know, got to ModCloth, everything is online only. And I am looking at the data and I'm like, oh, wow, 15% of your stuff is returned. Like that's, that's wild. And they were like, well, you know, you can't try stuff on until you get it. And I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. And we were never allowed to reorder anything that had a return rate over 20% because that probably meant it had big fit issues. And then I went to Nasty Gal and our return rate was more like 20%. And then as I moved through my career, I just saw it increasing and increasing. And I think it came really to a head just like industry-wide in 2020 when now like all shopping happened online because you couldn't go anywhere. And I started to see retailers freaking out about this. And one that people were talking about a lot was Revolve. Have you ever bought anything from Revolve? No, but um, just to talk really quick about Nasty Gal and why I'm not surprised that they had at least a 20% Oh, tell me. <laughs> okay. So I'm tall. I'm 5'10". Um, and it's very difficult to buy dresses or skirts online because, I mean, 
like they're just never long enough. But <laughs> one time, several years ago, um, I bought a dress from Nasty Gal. It had a side slit, Uh-oh. Um, which was more like I should not be seen outside yep. in this slit because... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Um, yeah, there were definitely a couple of fit issues there. So I'm not surprised, but I've never bought anything from fall because I think I learned my lesson from Nasty Gal and just didn't really trust it. Yeah. Yeah. I, so when I was working at Nasty Gal, obviously I was like not surprised by a return rate. Um, some stuff it would have like a 50% return rate. When I say return rate and I say like 50%, that means 50%, half of the units people bought came back to us, right? That's, That's crazy. Really bad, right? And other things, with, like T-shirts had a lower return rate, but like pants, dresses, skirts, high return rate. And unlike at ModCloth, where there was like, you could not, you were not allowed to reorder anything that had a return rate over 20%. Nasty Gal, they were kind of like, whatever. And I was like, guys, this is like bad, this is bad strategy. If something's coming back a lot, it means people don't like it. And so... I mean, one of the main reasons that Nasty Gal went out of business is that they were spending hundreds of dollars on new customer acquisition. Like, I want to say it was like somewhere between $150 and $200 per customer that came in. The company was spending on ads and Google search and all kinds of stuff to bring them in. So they've already spent like, we'll just make it easy and say $200 to get a customer to buy something. The customer would come onto the site, spend $100 maybe. So Nasty Gal still hasn't made that money back, but that's not abnormal because the expectation would be that the customer would get their order, love it so much, keep coming back to shop, and that $200 would be exceeded in the not-so-distant future, right? They'd make it all back. But instead, what would happen is the customer would come and spend $100. uh, They'd return half of that order, if not the whole thing, and then they would never shop there again. So then Nasty Gal was out the money of all the ads that had, had spent money on to acquire that customer, um, the cost of shipping to that customer, uh, you know, any other like return processing fees. <laughs> like it was, it, it was just bad. It, it was like, that's how you run out of money, right? Like that's, that's how places go out of business. Yes. And that was like something that I really carried with me for the rest of my time working in fashion. Like we have to be smart about returns. We really, really should not be buying stuff that gets returned a lot. And so imagine my surprise. So I, okay, I'll rewind. I started to read stuff about Revolve in 20, 2021, that era, that Revolve was in a bit of a crisis because of returns. And I think a lot of analysts were like, this is troubling, but it's also the pandemic and people aren't shopping. IRL and Revolve is online only. I had only ever bought one thing from Revolve. And I will tell you, I did return it because it was clearly defective when I received it. Like it had been returned by someone else or something, but the zipper was broken, like completely broken out. So I don't know how it got shipped to me in the first place, but I never bought anything from them ever again. And I was maybe not surprised by that experience because when I was at Nasty Gal, it was like Revolve was our rival, like our classier rival or something. (laughs) I don't know, Um, because they had more name brands than us. But it was kind of the same stuff. And so I had been reading like, okay, Revolve is really bleeding money on returns. They're kind of blaming influencers or what have you. And I told you about that too. Well, 
this year, so we're talking like three years after this conversation about Revolve's return problems really beginning, uh, Revolve revealed in August in an earnings call that their return rate this year, 60%. That is absolutely the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but also not surprised. (laughs) So once again, that means 60% of the stuff people buy from Revolve gets returned. For every 100 items Revolve ships out, 60 of them come back, more than half. This is wild. Now, to put that in context, the the return rate for apparel as a whole is about 24%. So almost three times, not quite, but, but exceptionally higher. And... Just in general, like the average retail return rate, you put all categories in there, skincare, home goods, you name it, that's like 16.5%. So apparel is always higher and it makes sense, but Revolve is in this like next level space. I mean, I, I, I don't know how people aren't like just burning it down and starting over. This is like really shocking. And I was reading this article from Sourcing Journal about this announcement. Basically, Revolve is already kind of having like a bad year. Um, Their sales are down to last year. And in the second quarter of this year, so that would have probably been May through July. Wait, did I do that right? February, March, April, May. Yeah, May through July. Uh, Revolve did about $275 million in sales. And uh, they only their only income from that, meaning when they took out returns and other shipping and logistics expenses, salaries, that kind of stuff, cost of goods sold, uh, they were only left with like $7 million. So to go from two, $275 million to $7 million oh, wow. left, uh, that's bad. That's, bad. <laughs> That's really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So they are in a really bad place. And what was interesting is, you know, in the past, when Revolve would talk about these things, they, and I'm sure they have analysts who are looking at this in every possible way. In the past, they really said that they felt that a big chunk of this was influencers or perhaps aspiring influencers placing huge orders, getting it all, maybe taking some photos in it, and then returning it all. And so they were cracking down on that kind of behavior. But now they're saying, actually, there's no, like, single cause. It's just everything. It's that people aren't liking the fit or the styles. They're disappointed when they get it. They're buying stuff that they don't really want. Uh, People are buying stuff just to wear it and return it. I mean, it's just, like, everything that has gone awry. But I got to say, like, just more than half of the stuff you sell being returned is like, this is how companies go out of business. It's giving me nasty gal vibes, you know? <laughs> giving nasty gal. <laughs> yeah, right? And they're like, you know, I I don't log into LinkedIn very often because it's really annoying. It really tries my patience. Mm-hmm. But every time I do, like one of the top posts will be something about like, we're going to redefine how returns work in the industry or like periodically weird startups that are working in that space will reach out to me about being on the podcast. And I'm like, well, are you going to pay me <laughs> because you have the money, right? Um, and then they're like, never mind. But uh, like they, there's so much conversation about this. And so it's like, okay, well, we're going to do uh, like 
virtual dressing rooms where you can try stuff on and see yourself, or we're going to change the way we give measurements on the site or like, it's all this stuff that maybe could put a dent in it, but it's also like, I think the problem is that there's no consistency in fit. Photos make things look way better than they are. Mm -hmm. For example, Nasty Gal, that's what we did there. We had incredible photography and then you'd get the package and you'd be like, what is this garbage? (laughs) You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I was a customer of Nasty Gal before I started working there. And the first box I got from them, I was like, I can't believe I bought this. I'm embarrassed, like how bad it is, you know, but it looks so good on the model. And, you know, like that's what retail is doing, you know? Oh, classic. Classic, right? And so I also like think like maybe we need to go back to shopping IRL more often. I think that's probably a big part of it, too. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Why don't we talk about the different ways that retailers handle returns? Uh, because I feel like Revolve hasn't really figured it out. <laughs> uh so, you know, if you go return something in a store, it's pretty straightforward, right? Like you bring it back. And in, I would say in 99% of cases, they put it back on the shelf for someone else to buy. But, you know, I'm on all these subreddits that I don't have any business being on <laughs> because I just like reading about what people do. One uh, subreddit that fascinates me when it comes to returns is Target. I don't know if you've ever heard anything about Target's return policies. Yes, I have. There's this, like, with the children's clothing. Have you heard about this? The Cat and Jack guarantee or whatever? Yeah, it's pretty. I think it's a really cool idea. Um, but, of course, as you know, some people do take advantage of it, unfortunately. <laughs> so, basically, like, if you buy Cat and Jack clothes and you're unhappy with them, 
you can bring them back. And I think you get like a year and you can bring them back and get a full refund or swap them for new ones. It seems to make people think that it's actually some sort of like sustainability exchange program, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's not because if you bring your worn Cat and Jack clothing back to Target, um, it gets thrown out or donated. Like it's not like they resell it to someone else. And people talk on Target on the Target subreddit about people showing up with like a whole like Ikea shopping bag of Cat and Jack clothes that are like a year or two or three old that they want to return for money. And they have to do it. And it's like, like someone was like, anytime I see an Ikea bag walking in the door and I'm stationed at the customer service desk, I go on break. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, that just makes me feel so sad because I wish there was a way to respectfully tell people who do that. Here's what actually happens when you do this. And... It's, it's just how do you how do you recover from that as a company and make people actually respect the policy but I don't know I'm not target I don't have billions of dollars <laughs> yeah I don't I mean you can't it's kind of like once you've let people I don't even like let the genie out of the bottle so to speak how do you go back right but as we're going to talk about like more retailers are tightening tightening up on things because because of this kind of stuff. But I, I actually, someone messaged me on Instagram a couple weeks ago and was like, hey, can you tell me about the sustainability of the like Target Cat and Jack program? And I was like, oh, well, you're lucky that I am a creep on the internet because I actually can tell you about it. You know, um, I was like, uh, it means that that stuff just gets donated or thrown in the trash, <laughs> the end, you know? Um, it's not like some sustainability program, but I think some people sort of spin it as that. I don't know if Target is, but it's not clothing rental. It's not hand-me-down you know it's returns um and i don't know i read a a whole bunch of stuff this weekend about how like target's business is really really bad right now like really bad how could they possibly turn back their return policy right now you know i don't know what would they do kind of like nordstrom at some point there is a limit and they just need to deal with the backlash and people will get over it that's honestly what i think yeah I think so too, but they just have to be like unafraid, yeah. you know? But generally in a store, if you return it and it's not broken or gross, someone else can come and buy it, yeah. right? But online is way more different and mysterious. It's very mysterious. Right? So do you think that when you were working for the skincare company, that customers who return stuff thought that those items would be resold to someone else? Honestly, that's hard for me to say because... Um, I would hope not because can you imagine being a customer buying a skincare item? Just like you changed your mind after you placed the order, but the company couldn't cancel the order. So you just receive it and then you're like, I don't want this anymore. I'm going to return it. Um, I would not as a customer want to risk purchasing an item that was returned because what if it was tampered with or, you know, something like that. So, um, but honestly, um, not everyone thinks like that. So I, I have no idea. <laughs> and I also wonder, I guess this is like my follow-up question. I don't have an answer. I'm just like thinking aloud right here. If customers did know, because sometimes you would be surprised. People are not thinking this this intensely about it. If the customer did know that anything they returned was going to be thrown out, I mean, for for obvious health reasons, it makes perfect sense mm-hmm. to me. Would they maybe 
give returning that item a second thought. You know, like maybe I actually do like this enough to use it or give it to a friend or, you know, or something like that. Right. Yeah. that That's really why I, I liked the green returns feature because, um, the communication that was given to the customer when they returned something and they were approved for a green return was thank you is something along the lines of thank you for your purchase. You don't have to return the item. Feel free to gift it to a friend um, or whatever. And they may or may not give that item a second try because honestly, the number of times I've, I've had a customer email me, not me, but when I worked at the skincare company email and say, this skincare item didn't work out for me because I'm also, because this is a, like an exfoliating product using like, um, like an AHA, BHA exfoliating product. We might ask them, well, what else are you using in your routine? We'll be like, oh, I'm using two different retinols. I'm using this product <laughs> night and day. Like, I'm like, this is like not the product's fault like you need to not be exfoliating your skin so much so um, yeah <laughs> hopefully they'll understand that I need to fix my routine and maybe <laughs> come back to this product mm-hmm. at a different date because I have experienced that before myself honestly mm-hmm, sometimes same. when I buy a skincare product and it doesn't work for my skin I don't even return it because I don't want the product being thrown away and it just might sit on my shelf for a couple of weeks and I'll give it another try and then it works for my skin. And honestly, who knows why that is. So yeah, it, it really, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a mystery. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have, I, I think that because, you know, before online shopping, or if you do return something IRL now, you know, that if you return something and it's in good condition, it's going to be available for someone else to buy. Um, you th- you assume that when you're returning something online that that will happen as well. I do think people, because I've seen people show up in the Ulta subreddit when someone's like, man, someone returned like $1,000 worth of hair care today. Here it all is. And I'm out here by the dumpster breaking it all, you know, spraying all the stuff out of the bottle and stuff before I put it in the dumpster. Oh. People are always shocked that that stuff can't be resold. I mean, I'm not, right? Yeah. But I I do think that like we all think there's this happy ending But, you know, we can all say, okay, now that I think about it, it makes sense that like food and personal care products, like those you wouldn't resell, right? Yeah, it's too bad. It's it's too bad, right? But it's, it's the same story with a lot of everything else that we return. And I think that's the part that people don't know that might make them change things up a little bit. Because the only way this like returns crisis gets fixed is if either retailers tighten up on return policy, which will force a change in consumer behavior and also leave people with a lot of stuff that they never use. Or if we just change how we buy stuff in the first place, I think it's like a combination there that would maybe fix this problem. But the reality is that right now, more and more retailers are just like taking the returns and never processing them, passing them off to someone else, right? A lot of this stuff, it doesn't necessarily get thrown out. Some of it does. Some of it gets donated. Some of it gets sold off to resellers. That's like such a thing now is like buying pallets of returns. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like a roll of the dice, right? Um, Or like I was telling you, 
we went to a place here in Austin that is Amazon Returns. And they're just buying them by the pallet and they dump them in a bin. And oftentimes they're still in their original shipping packaging. So you don't even know what it is. Um, And we've gone there a couple times because for me, it is so fascinating to see what people are buying from Amazon and returning um, because you really can buy anything on Amazon, right? Yes, it's it's kind of wild. And it'll be weird to like go to this place and see the same stuff over and over again. Like so many phone cases, so many phone cases. Oh my gosh, so many phone cases. Why is it phone so, cases? So many phone cases. So many like colored light bulbs. That's another thing I've seen a lot of oh. there. Um, random, just like the weirdest stuff. Like, I don't know, lots of weird like holiday decorations, uh, birthday party stuff. Um, it's like 99% of it is not useful, unfortunately, which makes it even sadder. Um, the phone cases and the phone accoutrements and the cords and the charging things and the bricks and the, so much of that kind of stuff. It's, it's just wild to me, but then also like a lot of baby stuff, you know, and like weird, random, like home goods stuff. Lots of really ugly throw pillows and shower curtains that I think probably looked really good on the website. And then someone got them and were like really, really disappointed. And, you know, if no one buys them from the bin drop place, then I'm sure they go to the landfill because no one wants them. Because the pl- this place here in Austin, on the first day the stuff gets dropped in, it's like $10. The next day, it's $7, then it's $5, then $3, and the last day, it's $1. Whatever's left, they take out, and then they fill up all the bins and start over for the next week. So that stuff that couldn't even sell for $1 is definitely going in the trash. And when you're there and you see all the phone cases, you're like, those phone cases are going in the trash for sure. (laughs) There's so many. But that's not an unusual story because it is cheaper for these brands to either write the stuff off and throw it on the trash or donate it or sell it off for pennies on the dollar to these like jobbers than it is to process the returns. Mm -hmm. And it's even cheaper beyond that to just tell you to keep it and give you your money back. Right. That's the cheapest for sure. But you know, it just, it, no one, it, it doesn't go back and get bought by someone else is what is what I'm saying. There was an undercover CBC, like Canadian Broadcasting Company expose that happened, I don't know, 2020, 2021, around that time, where they bought a bunch of stuff on Amazon and they put little like air tags or something yes, in it. I remember it. this. <laughs> remember that, right? And like, then they, f- they returned it all and they followed the journey and some stuff went around and around and around in trucks until finally ending up the landfill. Like it passed the landfill like 20 times <laughs> before ending up there. And other stuff was sold off in pallets. Other stuff was donated. Things were just sitting in warehouses unprocessed or in the same truck for months on end. And for me, that was really eye-opening too. I think I also, I don't think I realized really until we went to the bin drop place here in Austin, how much stuff people were buying on Amazon that no one actually wanted because it was so terrible. Yeah, it makes me feel a little unwell thinking about it. It does, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I, the whole time I was there, I, I felt I felt kind of nauseous. Like just, this is this is weird. 
Like this is this makes me sad yeah, about the world. It is sad. Um, but I think the average person, if they knew that odds are really high that what they return is going to end up in the trash or dumped at the Goodwill or something, they might rethink what they buy. Maybe make less risky purchases. Maybe not buy weird Amazon brand stuff on Amazon, you know, because the odds are high it's not going to be good and it's going to be trash, right? Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I think the companies want people to feel bad for them. And I can't because if they made better stuff, probably less of it would be returned. But I also am like, man, we got to buy, stop buying so much stuff that we're not serious about, you know? <laughs> it's yeah. like a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bad cycle. We talked about how there was a time when a lot of returns were being done with Google Sheets. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously that ship has long sailed and everybody has way too many returns to possibly be tracking that. Although I will tell you, when I worked at ModCloth and we were doing like $100 million in sales, our warehouse management system was a spreadsheet, <laughs> not a system. So where there's a will, there's always a way, of course. I guess, right? But more and more companies have, you know, arisen who deal with these this return problem. And, you know, they offer this service that ultimately probably does save these retailers money. So I thought you could tell us a little bit about how they work. Yeah, of course. So um, I started at Returnly at a really good year um, because I think it was right before the explosion of these return softwares. Mm -hmm. And since then, we've seen just more and more of them pop up. So um, because it is so expensive to build and maintain an in-house return solution, um, we are seeing more and more of these return solutions platforms, as I said, there are a few major players, Loop, Narvar, Happy Returns, and Return Logic. So um, I guess I also want to mention really quick, I want to be clear, <laughs> this is not an ad or endorsement for any of the companies I'm mentioning. So, <laughs> <laughs> But those are the big names. I recognize all of them. Yes, they're, they're big names. Um, so yeah. for companies like Loop, Narvar, and Return Logic. Customers create the return or exchange via an online portal and are issued a return label to send back the return to the merchant's warehouse. I'm sure most of us are familiar with this process. Happy Returns is a little different in that customers can generate a return label online or drop off their return at a return bar in their area. Returns are then batched and separately sent to the merchant's warehouse for processing. Now these none of these companies are actually receiving and processing the returns that's still on the merchant to action. So there's this middleman and that's the returns platform. Softwares are super easy to set up, especially for Shopify merchants who can download the return app of their liking directly from the Shopify app store. So it's a great solution for SMBs and large businesses alike. Companies like Good American, Everlane, um, Vori, just like some really big names use these softwares and mm -hmm. they generate so many return labels. It is actually insane. Oh, I bet. So when the company that I was working for finally was like, we got to stop tracking our returns in a spreadsheet. <laughs> um, they, they chose one, a different service, one called Nugistics, oh, which yeah, I, know, I mean, I they, them. yeah, they're another big one out there. Right. I think at least for some time they were doing the returns for Nordstrom. I don't know if they were now, but back then they were. I remember them like selling it to us that way. Like, oh, well, we got Nordstrom. And we were like, oh, well, that must be great. But 
if I recall the way it worked for them to handle our returns, it was how they made their money, I guess I'll say, is one, they obviously charged us for every return they processed. But even though like they didn't return the stuff to inventory or anything like that, you know, they kind of accumulated it all. Um, they also basically, you know, they we paid them for the shipping, the return shipping on the returns. But they made a profit off of that because they had um, negotiated an even lower price from the USPS. Mm -hmm. So they took a markup on it. And so that's like really where most of the money was coming in from them. And if you use them as your 3PL to do your outbound shipping to customers, that was also where a lot of their, their profit came into play. And it makes sense, right? But when I hear about that kind of stuff, I'm like, wow, so... They negotiate even lower rates with the USPS or UPS or FedEx, whoever the carries, carriers are. And that pressure for lower shipping prices, that really gets passed off onto both consumers who go out and ship their own packages and pay higher rates to cover, right? And all the workers who work within those companies, or I guess the USPS is not a company. It's an, I don't, what would you call it? An organization? I'm not really sure, but... <laughs> All those employees experience that downward pressure on pricing, you know, in terms of their pay and benefits and scheduling and all that stuff, right? So these returns have a bigger effect than just just the um, environmental impact. It's it's a complicated thing, you know. It really is. We talked about how more and more retailers are saying like, hey, don't worry, you don't need to send it back. And I've seen some pretty egregious stories. Like I saw one online like a year ago, someone bought a sofa online. I'm not really sure where, maybe maybe like overstock.com or something like that. And when they got the, the sofa, it was it had a stain on it. And they said, okay, well, we want to return the sofa. And they said, no problem. We're going to send you a new sofa, but you have to keep that sofa and do something with it. And that's where you're like, oh, that yes. sucks, you know? Um, it feels like being punished for someone else's mistake. Why would a retailer say, no, go go ahead and keep the sofa? <laughs> like, what are the advantages to that? Well, I mean, so I think in a case like the sofa, it's more advantageous for the retailer to say that yep. than it is for <laughs> the customer to keep that sofa. Like if I'm being told to keep um, a skincare product that um, didn't really work for my skin, obviously it's not as much of a burden as a sofa. Like what do you even do in that case? I don't even know. I don't even know. It gives me anxiety thinking about it. Honestly, hearing that story was like, note to self, never buy a sofa online. This is way too stressful. Like, oh my gosh. I have right? a story for another time about buying a sofa from Walmart. That was literally the worst experience buying online ever, but I won't get uh -huh. into that right now because okay. we're not talking okay. about Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's really great for merchants to tell a customer you don't have to send something back because then they don't have to pay for return shipping if they're offering free returns. Glaber receiving and processing the return and then obviously managing the return inventory, which we've talked about. It's a huge pain. It's a big time and money saver. 
And for customers, it's a really great experience for them, except if you're returning a sofa, I guess. I know. Doesn't um, that give you anxiety? Yes, it does. <laughs> I don't even know what happened there, but um, I would love to know what the end I know. result was. I feel sad for them because, like, that's – you got to move it back outside. you got to find someone to take it. Anyway, just unfair situation. Really unfair. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but let's say I'm returning a skincare product. I then don't mm-hmm. have to go through – the hassle of packaging return, printing a label, especially if I don't have a, a printer, like who has them these days. Oh my gosh, I know, right? I know. Um, and then actually going to the post office and mailing the return. So I will say an unfortunate downside to policies like this are the people who have figured out how to game the system. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know if we want to go into the specifics of that now or later. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about it because I do think, you know, like I've seen... I feel like we're we're kind of going to see a return to older return policies. <laughs> I guess that was a pun, but by accident. <laughs> but, you know, I was saying how like early in my career, it was kind of like do whatever you can to not get people to return stuff. Like, yes. you know, in real life, like question every decision, only give them two weeks and they have to have the receipt and they have to have an ID and they have to have the card that they made the payment with, right? These are all policies that I have dealt with firsthand. And, you know, even that first, I don't know, like six months I was working at Nasty Gal, it was really interesting. Our return rate was still really high, but we, one way we were kind of artificially sort of suppressing it was that we made returns really hard. We didn't have pre pre-printed shipping labels. We didn't even have a portal where you could print out the label. You literally had to take the item yourself to the post office, UPS, wherever, and pay to have it shipped on your own dime. So a lot of people are going to be like, never mind. <laughs> like, that's too much work, you know, or I don't have time. That's like so inconvenient. But we were feeling that pressure. Like we did a a consumer insight survey, because obviously we're like, oh my God, we spent all this money to get these customers and they never come back. And one thing that came up a lot was like, the returns are too hard. It feels too risky. So we felt that pressure to start offering free returns. It wasn't even free returns. What we did was like, now we paid for some sort of plugin, probably Narvar or something, mm-hmm. where you could generate the label right there, print it out and send it, right? So we started doing that, but you'd still be charged like seven fifty dollars or whatever. And immediately the returns just like spiked. It was like someone flipped a switch and it was like, oh shit, what we have we done? But, you know, then we see more and more people saying like, okay, now returns are free. Now you get your money the moment the USPS picks up the item and the tracking goes through, you know, like anything they can to make it easier. But over time, I mean, I'm sure retailers kind of had to know this. People were going to game the system and I just wonder if, like, you you have to say, like, well, how many people game the system before it becomes a problem? Now yeah. I think we're going to see this return to things, this return to stricter return policies because I think it's not even it's not even like just the people gaming the system, but also just people living their lives. But I do wonder, like, what, how common is gaming the return system? Um, you know, I don't want to go into too many details just because I don't want this to come off in a bad way and have somebody then take advantage of like <laughs> it and accidentally um open that door for them. Right, but, right. Um I will say any company with a policy this lenient or a, like a green returns like feature that a returns platform's offering 
All these companies will have some sort of internal check to make sure customers aren't abusing it. This is also the case with like um, any of the like friend referral companies like friend buy. I don't know if you've heard of them, but like you refer your friend and then they get a discount, you get a discount kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. All these Mm -hmm. companies have their own internal way to make sure um, they aren't being abused, which is great. Um, So, but that of course, um, people still figure a way around that. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, it's gotta be harder with more and more of our data being readily available to anyone who wants it. But I do remember at some point hearing like, oh, well, Nordstrom, even Nordstrom with its infamously lenient uh, return policy, did sort of track internally the people who reached a certain threshold yes. of returns and kind of throttle them a little bit. Um, I I know that that's what like uh, Revolve has been threatening, but I kind of wondered like, do a lot of retailers do that? They must. They must. They have to. I mean, otherwise, well, I mean, of course, the threshold is really high for a lot of these retailers, but. Um, yeah, they have to. Otherwise, they'd just be losing too much money. Yeah. I mean, the 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 legend, as I have heard it in Portland, is that the Nordstrom and the Lloyd Center closed uh, because they were receiving more returns every day of stolen merchandise stolen from other Nordstroms in the area than they were actual sales. So they were going like negative every single day. And like, it just wasn't manageable anymore. You know, like it was just all loss every single day. Um, That's the legend, word on the street. I heard it from someone who worked there. I don't know how reliable it is, but it does make sense because, you know, there also there's like a lot more theft now, you know? Yeah. Um, But it does, it, it does make you wonder like when, when will companies finally say like enough is enough? I still don't think that like the vast majority of returns are people trying to game the system. I think it is just like disappointing product and overconsumption. Yeah, I agree with that. But, um, you know, I think with all things, um, well, most things actually will eventually get to um, a place where things are a little bit more even and there isn't a need to be um, like super lenient or super strict and merchants will find a good middle ground and they'll just do what works for them. And that's why we are seeing all of these changes with return policies, like the past two years, um, just all of these changes with return policies when I was working at Returnly, um, especially I think in the post pandemic era, merchants saw these huge huge increases in their sales. And then, of course, as we're entering these uncertain economic times, they need to be more strict with what they're accepting and how often and from who. So um, I did actually want to go back to um, just talking about how easy it is to accept returns because there's this kind of exciting thing that I read the other day um, that I just want to talk about really quick. Yeah, which I think is really it. cool. Okay. So um, I mentioned Happy Returns, which is that return bar company. I think Everlane uses them. So um, PayPal acquired Happy Returns in May 2021. 
And I just read a couple of weeks ago that UPS announced they are buying Happy Returns, which oh, is wow. really exciting. I know. Wow. It's kind of a big deal. Like, not very often am I like, wow, that's a smart business decision. Yeah, that's really <laughs> smart. I know. Um, so I think it'll make Happy Returns more enticing to prospective merchants as customers want more, like, printerless returns, easier returns. And, you know, I don't know the specifics of the deal, obviously, but... Um, and UPS's next plans with happy returns, but I think it was a really smart move for UPS, especially in advance of the busiest return season. So hopefully that, um, makes it easier for customers to be able to actually return their items instead of just being like, Oh, I don't have a printer. I'm too busy Mm -hmm. to like go to the FedEx or UPS store to print a label and ship it. And like, I lost the packaging and Oh my gosh, there's too much going on. Like, hopefully this just makes it easier for them and they can actually get their money back. So that's, that's pretty exciting. I think that is exciting. You know, here's the thing like to, to think about is that if retailers make it too hard to do returns, what we just see is more stuff that people don't want getting dumped at thrift stores too, right. Or going in the trash. So like, it's not good. We don't like solve the problem by just like not letting people do returns anymore. It's, This is a problem that has so many causes and so many effects. Like, I know we often, I mean, it's just human nature. We want this really cut and dry, like, this is the solution, right? Mm -hmm. It's straightforward. And in this case, it's just, like, not. And it is such a problem of our times, you know? It's, like, wrapped up in all of these issues all at once. And there's no easy solution. But I do think making returns easier for people can at least ensure that like perhaps these items will find their way to someone who will want them and use them rather than just sitting in the corner. I mean, I read this statistic back, I think this was in 2020, where like the average person had like, I don't know, four or five or six garments in their closet at any given moment that had the tags still on it and had never been worn because of things like this. And so that's not great either. You know, and I see so much stuff at every thrift store that has literally never been worn because the tags are still on it. Um, mm-hmm. I see a lot of Shein with the tags still on. And I actually tried on a Shein dress at the thrift store a few weeks ago. I was like, this is pretty cute. Maybe I'll maybe I'll get this. Um, and like the measurements in the chest and waist and everything were, my, were right for me, but I couldn't get my arm through the armhole above my elbow. Like oh it was gosh. just so poorly designed. I know. <laughs> and like that sucks. It, pro- it was probably too hard for that person to return it. So there it was, tags on at the at the Texas Thrift. And like literally who will ever be able to wear that? I, I wish I had an answer. I know. I wish <laughs> yeah, I had an, it's an actual child. Like, it would have to be an actual child. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's it's such such a complicated thing. So one question that I have heard a lot over the years when it comes to returns is, and this has changed in certain, depending on what platform a retailer uses, is why don't you get your money back right away, <laughs> right? Like, why can it take a while? So I'm sure that when you were, you, when you're working with customers, uh, you have heard this a lot. I our customer service person at the startup, she said that like this was nine out of ten emails was like, why don't when am I getting my money? You know? Yes. Or just um like the only content in the email is where's my money? 
Yeah. <laughs> Love, it. It. Love, Love it. Love it. Get down. Just get down to business. <laughs> yes. We're not wasting any time. Where's my money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So why does it, I mean, I, I know why, but like, why don't you explain to everyone else why you might not get your money back right away? You know, I really wish I had a simple answer for this, but, um, I don't. Well, <laughs> As we know, because we've probably all shopped online at some point, <laughs> online retailers have such vastly different return and refund policies. And as I mentioned earlier, one of the most common requests we had at Returnly was for merchants wanting to shorten their return eligibility window, lengthen the time frame in which a refund is issued after return is delivered, and so on. So let's just review the process here. If okay. you're returning something by mail, the return package may get lost in the mail, return to sender the label was damaged, et cetera. So mm -hmm. those can all be factors for why it's taking so long to get your money back other than the return policies. So those are factors outside of the control of the merchant. Um, I would say the benefit for merchants wanting to lengthen the time frame in which a refund is issued after the return is delivered is so that they can make sure the product that you returned um, actually meets their return policy. So mm -hmm. that is why it might take 10 days after it was delivered is because they are really wanting to make sure it's resellable. So that was mo more common, I would say, with SMBs and the larger merchants, because a lot of the time with the larger merchants, they just wanted the refund to be issued as soon as the return was scanned. So um, let's just say you return the thing by mail and the return package was lost. Well, then that is a big issue for you. So just a PSA, always make sure you remove or cover up old labels if you're reusing a box. Seriously, and, I have learned yes. this one the hard way, okay? It's life hack right here. <laughs> life hack, I'm revealing all of the secrets. <laughs> and retain the tracking number for your return so you can look at updates because I really believe that it is the responsibility of the customer to make sure that their return is actually being delivered and is in route because um, the merchant isn't going to track that for you. They only have so much insight. Like I would have the same amount of tracking available to me as the customer does. So um, that's just always the best practice. And then this is a fun one. I have been told by a USPS representative that they will destroy packages if a package is deemed undeliverable for whatever reason. Interesting. So, like, if there's insufficient postage on the return and they can't get in touch with the customer or the merchant, they'll just destroy it uh, because it's easier and cheaper for them. Um, so that's also why you didn't get your refund. <laughs> <laughs> and then... A PSA for online retailers, please, please make sure your product weights are accurate. I know it's a pain to update these, but USPS especially is known to return to sender, hold a package, or charge a customer to cover additional postage if the original parcel weight and postage calculated was insufficient. So that it's just a really bad experience for the customer. And then you obviously also risk having the package destroyed and... If you were planning on reselling that merchandise that was returned, well, you've lost out on that too. So, yeah, all of it's really not a, a simple answer. There's a lot of different things, but um, 
So don't expect to have the same experience at every retailer you shop at. I wish it was easy and simple, but we just really need to make sure our packages are being delivered. And we also need to be doing our own due diligence to make sure the package that we're sending back <clears throat> meets the return policies of the merchant. Because if the tags are removed and you wore it a bunch of times and it's stained, well, you're probably not going to get your refund back. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, I think that I'm, these are all true things. You know, a lot of a lot of retailers at this point have figured out that people want to know where their money is, right? Like, I think, <laughs> like, if companies that have the cash flow to do this are giving people their money back the moment the tracking is received. But, yes. you know, if you, of course, I, I, I think this is so smart. Uh, they knew people would game that system and just ship empty boxes or whatever. Uh, so they do open the box eventually. And if there's nothing in there, they take the money back from you. Like it, they've got, they've got stuff going on. They're figuring it out. Um, but I'm sure everybody who works with customers was relieved when more and more technology existed to just give people their money back. I can't imagine just answering those emails all day. I will say, um, if you're somebody who regularly, for whatever reason, um, abuses a return policy and you're the person who's sending back empty boxes or you're, uh, you figured out how to game the system for like those green returns types of features, um, you're going to be blocked from returning or even purchasing from that merchant, which... I don't think we want that to happen. So it's better to just be honest, I think. But um, we live in an imperfect world. Yeah, (laughs) we sure do. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, you know, you were talking about, you know, working at Returnly. And I wondered, I know Returnly's not around anymore. What happened? Yeah, well, there's only so much I can say. So um, I'll just say that Returnly was acquired by a firm. A firm is a buy now, pay later company similar to Afterpay. They were acquired in May 2021, so right around the time that PayPal acquired Happy Returns. And then mm. in July of this year, a firm announced they would be divesting in Returnly to focus on a firm's core BNPL business and wind down operations as of October 2023. So that was just over a month ago now. So a firm actually then entered a strategic partnership with Loop, Returnly's biggest competitor mm. at the time, to transition those interested merchants to Loop's platform. So um, that's what I was doing for most of 2023. But I think it's really interesting to see how return softwares have evolved over the years, and we'll see what the future holds. But um, yeah, that's what happened to Returnly, RIP. I mean, I think we're going to see even more of this kind of reorganization, you know, of of that industry to think Mm -hmm. about how much it has grown even in like five years is wild. I would say two years is two years. I would say like, well, within the last two years, I think is when I've seen the most growth. Um, Five years, I think, is your spot on with when it really started to catch on. Because, like, retailers were like, oh, 
this is like a mess. Yes, it's a mess. Like, what are we going to do? How many more emails are we going to get every day saying, where's my money? You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> well, they still get those. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, like... I do think like tw- 2020 was probably a major turning point just with everybody shopping mm-hmm. online and especially thinking like online shopping. I'm just retail as a general, like in general, the when the pandemic began in in March, like really like when we went into shutdown mode, every retailer out there thought like that was it. Everything was going to be horrible for the rest of the year and they canceled all their orders. You know, they were just like a panic mode. And the retailers who didn't do that, you know, like Amazon, because they didn't have to, most of that stuff is third party or Shein, uh, they blew up because it turned out people ended up shopping even more because they were bored and depressed, right? And of course, (laughs) by the end of the year, all that stuff starts coming back and it's like, uh, wait, they're going to send it back to us. And I think that really was a big turning point for all of these companies. Like, wow, returns are bigger than ever. And yeah. once again, 60% of the stuff bought from Evolve this year has been returned. That is, that's definitely on the like outer bounds of like, you know, the highest return rates. But a lot of companies have seen themselves creeping that way. Even just to think that like, on average, about a quarter of clothing that is bought online is returned. So one out of every four garments. That's a lot too. That's like not a little drop yeah. in the bucket. Uh, I think that we probably have reached this point where retailers realize like they've got to figure something out because suddenly it's a lot harder to make money. Or at least I hope they figure something out. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens because I think the like the industry as a whole has been really stuck on like how to be more sustainable and ethical while still selling people lots of clothes. And we know that's not really a thing that works. Uh, so I wonder, they're probably also similarly trying to say like, how can we manage returns better while still not losing a cent in sales. And I think those things are intrinsically connected, you know, like there has to be a change, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, It's just really interesting to me how like returns have become just this separate industry. And I honestly never would have imagined it. And like I had mentioned, we're seeing all these new returns platforms pop up, but we're also seeing ones that are more focused on logistics, like Happy Returns, as we can see with the UPS acquisition. And then also there's a couple other ones that are coming up that are more focused on logistics as well. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, I definitely hope that merchants can learn from all of this and figure out a way to make things more sustainable. But honestly, I am so torn on those policies like green returns that Returnly had because with the online shopping return experiences becoming so much more seamless, like they're, they're designed to get you to buy more, but also hopefully easier returns will encourage people to actually return their items. But yeah, we'll we'll see. I think is a good is a good way to put it. <laughs> it's a good way. To, yeah, I mean, I I would have never thought that I would be saying to you today that like companies, there are brands out there where sixty percent of their stuff is coming back. You know, uh, so we're already just seeing this constant shift in what it means to sell stuff to people right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, and 
it is, I, I do think it's really interesting that UPS bought Happy Returns. I could see a lot more of that sort of consolidation happening mm-hmm. because, you know, like I was saying earlier, a company like, say, Nugistics makes its money servicing returns by marking up the shipping, yeah. right? Um, and so imagine if UPS could keep all of that and still charge the same prices yes. to the companies. Exactly. It could actually be, in a weird way, uh, better for the people who work for UPS. That's a good point. I never you know? really thought of it that way. Like maybe that's where these platforms belong. It does make I don't sense. Know. It does make sense because then also it makes it way easier for customers to actually return the product. And it's just a way better experience for them. I mean, so much of returns is just the customer experience and how can we make the experience better and how can we improve it and then actually retain that customer and spend less on acquiring new customers. So I think it's, it's great overall. Um, and I just, I, I want these returns companies to succeed because I think there's a lot of potential, especially for those green returns type features where, um, like for example, loop, they have a similar one where merchants, I believe they can choose to send certain items to like donation centers or Mm. back to their own warehouse or, um, or somewhere else. I, I didn't really, I wasn't really able to find out much about that because so much of it is behind closed doors, but um, <laughs> it's all shrouded in mystery. I know. Well, maybe I just need to go work for loop and figure that out. <laughs> yeah. And report back. Seriously. Sometimes I mean, like, even if I go to a restaurant and there's something that I really like, I'm like, should I just get like a job here for a week so I can learn the recipe? Right? That's exactly <laughs> I think about this I stuff all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily, I wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your experience and expertise. And I think that hopefully we did pull back a little bit of the shroud of mystery about returns. Thank you. I really hope we did as well. I hope people had some things to learn. And um, I mean, I think, like I had mentioned, there's a lot of potential and a lot of area for improvement for everyone involved. And I really hope customers feel more, will feel more empowered and more educated on what they need to do to actually make sure they get their money and how custom, how merchants can make it better for customers. And yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. 
Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicwear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things 
and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. Thanks to Emily for sharing her time and expertise with all of us. I just want to add that I have seen photos of her Yorkie toffee, and he is indeed beyond adorable. So I promised you before the conversation, we're going to talk about it right now. How can we reduce our own return behavior? And like I said in the intro, I was once a returnaholic, definitely returning at least 25% of the stuff I bought, but probably way more because it was all so disappointing and poorly fitting. Always made me feel so terrible to open those boxes and try things on. When I learned the truth about how the return system really works, I stopped that to the best of my ability. For me, that meant two big things. No more impulse shopping and no shopping from brands that consistently ship me disappointing product that somehow in no way actually resembled the photos on the website. If you know, you know. A big part of returns is not our fault at all. It's bad product with misleading photos and also confusing or incomplete product copy. It's bad size charts. It's Brands knowingly selling us bad stuff. But there are a few things that we can do to reduce our own return behavior. And you know what? Every bit helps when we are doing it together, right? So back in 2022, more than a year ago at this point, I did a post on Instagram about returns, how they really work, and how we can do better as individuals. And I'll be honest, the response was not great. Quite a few people called me fat phobic specifically because I suggested trying to shop IRL as often as possible so you can try things on, which is very difficult when most retailers only offer plus sizes, petite sizes, tall sizes online. I also said that for special events, you should consider borrowing clothing from a friend. Once again, best intentions by saying all of that. But that's the thing about social media and why I still find my heart racing every time I open Instagram. You never know when you're going to absolutely fuck it up and hurt someone, even when you set out with the best intentions. So I haven't posted about returns since then because I've been thinking about how to do it in a better way 
for more than a year now. So here is my attempt at a new list with a lot of caveats, okay? First off, if you have the privilege, time, and access of being able to shop IRL, do it. Listen, I will tell you, one of my least favorite places on earth is any fitting room in just about every store. They completely destroy my self-esteem, but when I look back at many of the things I have returned over the years, there's no way I would have bought them if I had seen them IRL in the first place, especially the stuff that was like really bad fabric, or I always bring up this pair of pants from Zara that my foot wouldn't even fit into, wouldn't have bought those in the first place, right? Now, obviously, that is not an option for everyone every time. But when you can, just do it. I know a lot of people like to shop with others when they are trying stuff on. I personally do not. I prefer a solo trip, but do what works for you if you can. Now, here's the thing. Going to a store and going shopping, um, it takes up a lot of time, which a lot of us don't have. As I touched on, stores don't offer all the sizes. I personally have way too much anxiety about going to the mall and being shot. So I just like, don't do that. Um, And sometimes like the brand you really love, the clothes you really want are not anywhere local to you, right? Or you can't get a babysitter or, you know, there, there are a million reasons why you need to shop online, right? That's why it's really important when you're shopping online to read content and care information, Finding that information on a product page might take a little bit of extra clicking. Somehow it's often in a, like a hidden accordion, like a dropdown, because probably because 100% polyester doesn't sound very premium, right? But I will tell you, I have definitely returned a lot of stuff because it looked like one fabric in the photos. And then upon receiving it, I realized that it was an unbreathable, itchy, or uncomfortable synthetic fabric or something that was already snagging on my fingernail when I took it out of the package. You, you know, if you've experienced it, like, uh, the fingernail snagging on the fabric gives me like a full body chill. If a brand is not sharing fabric content info, I would say avoid them because that's sketchy. And I would also say if they're not telling you, it's because it's synthetic, right? Okay, so next when you're shopping online, there are the size charts. And listen, I always try to use them. I measure similar garments. I measure my body, blah, blah, blah. I do all the things that you're supposed to do. It just isn't always right. Sometimes it is, but not consistently even when I shop from the same brand regularly. That's because, as we touched on, they're not always taking the time to get the fit right, to QA the product when it comes in to make sure it all measures the way it's supposed to. And also, like, if you've ever bought a pair of jeans from a place and then went back six months later and bought the same pair of jeans and the same size and they didn't fit you, it's because they came from a different factory, right? And so it's just like... There's not enough consistency there. I would say like, try your best, but know that nothing is foolproof when it comes to size and it's not your fault. And it's certainly not your body that is the problem. It's the industry, right? Next, and this is one I stand by. This is something that we can all do. If a brand is consistently disappointing you with fit and quality, just break up with them. They don't deserve your trust or your money anymore. 
And lastly, don't impulse shop just because it's a big sale day or or you're sad or you're having a bad day at work or in bed with the flu. I've done all of these things and those behaviors almost always led to a lot of returns. At the end of the day though, sometimes we're gonna return stuff. This system does not set us up for success. I mean, we're dealing with low quality product and high quality product photos. It's confusing for sure, but shopping less leads to less returns. And if we're all doing that at once, not only can we make a major impact in terms of the environmental and social impact of all of those returns, we might actually force the industry to start making better stuff. Imagine. Let's see what we can all do together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, hosted, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. As I always ask you, if you liked what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, tell your friends. That's how we get this information out there, right? If you'd like to support my work financially, which I would love, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast, or you can take advantage of the Apple premium subscription, which gets you full access to the close horse archives. If you've heard all those episodes, Hey, you also just get to spend a couple bucks every month supporting work that matters to you. There are other ways you can support the podcast financially or just in general, and you can learn all about that on Instagram, where you'll find me as at Close Horse Podcast. That's also where I am on TikTok, although I would say 25% of my posts get returned. No, they get pulled by TikTok, and I don't know why. It's always the ones about not shopping. Interesting. Um, <laughs> last but not leastly, uh, Thank you, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye, everyone.